If you have your copies of Scripture, if you will, turn to 1 Peter. We'll look at verses 3 through 5. We will be back in verse 3, um, beginning again next week. Uh, but for our purposes today, we want to take a, a quick look uh, at uh, some incredible truth uh, that God gives us here uh, in this portion of Scripture. As you turn uh, there, just let me extend my Easter greetings to you. Uh, happy Easter. Happy Resurrection Sunday. It is a great day. It's a great day to be alive, a great day to be able to worship together with the body of Christ. Uh, even this week I had several conversations about why Easter isn't on the same date every year. And most of you probably know that, but maybe for some of you who don't and you wonder, well, it seems like Easter is here and it's here and it's here. Well, uh, just the simplest explanation is, is, is Easter Sunday is always, generally always, as much as always, is always uh, the first Sunday after the full moon that follows the spring equinox. That is, twice a year the sun lines up directly over the equator. Uh, in the northern hemisphere it does that March 21st, 22nd, 20, 21st, 22nd. Uh, in the southern hemisphere that takes place September 22nd or 23rd. Uh, but for our purposes, uh, Easter's kind of the church, the Catholic church back years ago, said that they were going to mark off and just say it was going to be on the 21st of March. So uh, one, uh, the first Sunday after the first full moon uh, after that day. So that'll give you a little bit of reason why sometimes you'll, Easter winds up in March and sometimes it uh, will wind up in, in April. So uh, next year it's March 31st, by the way, if you want to go ahead and mark your calendars. Before we read our text this morning, I think it would be helpful uh, to hear a few comments that have been made about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And uh, uh, you, Some of you may have heard these before, you may have even read them, uh, some of you will be familiar with the people who have stated them, uh, but John MacArthur says the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the single greatest event in the history of the world. He said it's so foundational to Christianity that no one who denies it can be a true Christian. A person who believes in a Christ who is not raised, believes in a powerless Christ, a dead Christ, and if Christ did not raise from the dead, then no redemption was accomplished at the cross, and your faith, he says, is worthless. And Paul goes on to say that as well. He said, you're still in your sins. We looked at that uh, when we gave attention to the resurrection back here some years ago in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If Christ was not raised, his death was in vain, your faith in him would be pointless and your sins would still be counted against you uh, with no hope for spiritual life. Uh, J.I. Packer, who has gone on to be with the Lord now, said this about the resurrection. He said, Optimism is a wish without warrant. Christian hope is a certainty guaranteed by God himself, grounded in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Optimism reflects ignorance as to whether good things will ever actually come. Christian hope expresses knowledge that every day of his life and every moment beyond it that a believer can say with truth on the basis of God's own commitment that the best is yet to come. Uh, we'll hear more about that this morning when we look at our text. 
Basil Hume said, the great gift of Easter is hope. Hope. Christian hope, which makes us have that confidence in God, in His ultimate triumph, and His goodness and love, which nothing can shake. Josh McDowell had this to say about the resurrection. He said, no matter how devastating our struggles, disappointments and troubles are, they're only temporary. No matter what happens to you, no matter the depth of tragedy or pain you face, no matter how death stalks you and your loved ones, the resurrection promises you a future of immeasurable good. Few people seem to realize that the resurrection of Jesus is the cornerstone to a worldview that provides the perspective to all of life. I want you to hear that again. Think about it again just a minute. Few people seem to realize that the resurrection of Jesus is the cornerstone to a worldview that provides the perspective to all of life. Uh, so, at uh, the very, the very foundation of a Christian's worldview is the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and in that we can look at everything else. We can see everything else. Everything else falls into perspective because of what the resurrection accomplishes. And then John Piper says this. He says the best news of the Christian gospel is that the supremely glorious creator of the universe has acted in Jesus Christ's death and resurrection to remove every obstacle between us and himself so that we may find everlasting joy in seeing and savoring his infinite beauty. That is, brings us into eternity so that we can experience Him and be with Him and love Him and be loved on by Him. The Bible said He was raised not just after the blood shedding, but by it. This means that what the death of Christ accomplished was so full, and Adam just spoke of this, from the second stanza of that last song we sang. So full and so perfect that the resurrection was a reward and vindication of Christ's achievement and death. And I would just like to add that the resurrection of Jesus Christ, for me, is one of the three greatest events in human history. And you may ask, well, what are the other two? And the other two make the resurrection possible, so to speak. They are the birth of Christ and the crucifixion of Christ. The birth of Christ was so profoundly miraculous because He was divinely conceived, separating Him from the rank and file of humanity. He was every bit human, though not a son of Adam. And He was every bit God. Now remember this. Jesus existed for all eternity. He was and remains co-eternal and co-equal with the Father and the Spirit. And those who witnessed his life ran headlong into this truth. At times with confusion and at other times with astonishment, it brought about a crisis of faith. I was thinking about that. It still does today. It brings about a crisis of faith. He acted like no one else. He did things that only God could do. And yet he moved in and out of life like a common ordinary man. He was a man of humble means and he carried himself with humility and with an absolute trust in God the Father. 
and then the significance of his death cannot be overstated. Though the mere eye will only see it as another execution if his identity is refuted or disbelieved. If he is not Christ and he is not the Son of God, then that day on Calvary there were just three men, three men crucified like the hundreds and thousands before them and the hundreds and thousands after them. And in light of his birth and death, his resurrection validates the other two along with many other world-changing happenings. Some of which have already occurred and some yet to occur. But here's what I can't get away from. His resurrection is significant to every individual that has ever lived. That's not true of other world-changing events. Now, major world events affect a lot of people directly, and some even affect a lot of people indirectly in ways that they never know. The resurrection of Jesus Christ directly affects every person who has ever lived. And though they may not realize it now, there is coming a day when they will be made clean, keenly aware of just how significant that event is. So we look to our text today. 1 Peter chapter 1, reading in verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Will you pray with me? Father, would you give us understanding of this text in its context and what you mean for it to say to us We're in need of hearing from you today. You have risen. You have risen. Help us to see and know it in Christ's name. Amen. Those who were with us last week, uh, you know that we began our 16-week series uh, in 1 Peter. And here's what we discovered last week. We discovered that Peter's contemporary audience were believers who lived in a portion of Asia Minor that we now know as Turkey. They were scattered in their uh, part of the world, and they were mostly going to face hardship and suffering for the sake of the gospel. And all of this, we were told by Peter, by the Holy Spirit, was directed by the sovereignty of God, by whom they had been chosen in salvation, were strangers, as it were, in a world that tolerated them at best and hated them at worst, which is true of us today as believers, were in their scattered state and were experiencing varying degrees of suffering because of who they were. And as we looked at it last week, we compared parts of this to Israel and their place in the world from Abraham, but especially as they were delivered by God out of Egypt. I want you to notice here in verse 3 that Peter does something that we would not expect 
early on in this letter. And that is he breaks out into praise and worship. We wouldn't expect that, but that's what he does. He identifies God as Jesus, God and Father. I want you to see that. Look, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why did he do that? Why didn't he just say, blessed be God? He was pointing us back to the unique relationship that this one, Son of God, had and the fact that all through the course of his days, he looked to his Father and he worshipped God the Father. He, God himself, worshipped God the Father. Turns to God the Father. Submits to God the Father. Walks in humility before God the Father. Prays to God the Father. What does it mean when we say that Jesus is the Son of God? Well, let's first state what we don't mean. We don't mean that God has a wife and procreated with a wife and therefore fathered a son in the way that we understand the process of biological procreation. That's not what we mean. That didn't happen. Okay? So if we're running headlong into that truth and we are trying to figure it out in our minds and how we understand that procreation happens and how we understand that sons are made, that is not what we are talking about. That's not even what the Bible points to. We do not mean that there was a time when Christ didn't exist and then somehow that God brings him into being in a way that we can't explain or maybe in some other creative work uh, that is separate from the creative work that we are given testimony to uh, in Genesis 1 and 2 and in other places of Scripture. So if it doesn't mean those two things, what does it mean? It means that Jesus is God. He's the second person of the triune Godhead. Paul put it this way in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 9. In him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. We read in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 6. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. Hebrews chapter 1 verses 2 and 3 and we have rehearsed this over and over again because it was so foundational to our understanding as we studied Hebrews. In these last days God has spoken to us by a son whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the very stamp of his nature. In other words the very imprint of his nature upholding the universe by His power. And then in Hebrews 1, 8 and 9, we hear of the Son of God, He says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And John writes, in John chapter 1, verse 1 and verse 14, And the Word, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. Why state that? Well, Peter is pointing us to that reality and to the reality that that son has a father and that son has a God and Peter is saying that we are to worship Jesus 
Father, we are to worship Jesus God, and as we embrace Him and accept Him, and we're going to see in just a moment about His work, that we will want to run to God to worship Him, because all of life is built around that for us. In other words, the purpose of humanity is to acknowledge the glory of God and see Him and worship Him and enjoy Him. When we call Him the Son of God, we mean that He is of the same nature as God. Fathers create things like themselves, but they beget sons like themselves. In other words, they create things that are not like them, they beget sons that are like them, and He is the Son of God. So when we say that Jesus is the Son of God, we mean that God has begotten His Son in this very same divine nature. Nothing less. From all eternity. Beginning is just simply a metaphor of a, metaphor of a picture that, that tries to hold two truths together. God the Father is not God the Son. And God the Son is not God the Father. And God the Son and God the Father are not God the Spirit. And God the Spirit is not God the Father or God the Son. But they relate to each other. It's a foundational truth for understanding the gospel. As we said last week, we can't talk about salvation in the gospel without speaking of it in triune language. But now why is this significant? Well, Peter is making a point to his audience, and we've said it. He is saying that it is only right to worship Jesus. Jesus is God and Father. He's identifying who God is so that no one will be confused. And I hope today that for us here, that no one is confused about who God is. He is not the God of Islam. He is not some other God. He is a God who has revealed Himself, and in revealing Himself, has revealed Himself in His triunity, every person of the Godhead Working as we saw last week, if you'll back up in verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. He's establishing that as chosen believers, we are to believe in, trust in, and worship God as He has revealed Himself, and how He reveals Himself is at the backdrop of how He works. I want you to get that. That's how He works. And what is His work? What has God done? And now Peter begins to unveil again, in a, very, in a deeper way than before, what God the Father has done. He said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again. He has caused us to be born again. That is, He has caused believers to be born again. Not everyone is born again. Believers are born again. And who does this work? Well, Peter's pointing to it. God does this. God does this. But what is the ground for that? And that's the reason we, we're identifying this today. What is the ground for that? The ground for that work is 
through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I want you to hear that again. The ground for this new birth is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Apart from His resurrection and apart from Him winning victory over death and apart from Him gaining life by the Spirit of God, apart from Him doing the work that led to God's approval that then brought about His life and His resurrection, there is no rebirth. There is no hope for life. So all of our hope for any God-honoring spiritual life that leads to eternal life rests in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the reason we're celebrating here today. As a believer, we're celebrating. If you are a believer here today, your heart should be overjoyed that you now have life. And if you're here today and if you've not trusted Christ, then you don't have life. You don't have. But you can in Christ because of His resurrection. Peter's pointing to the sovereign work of God. He has caused us to be born again. Now why is this important? Well, we mentioned a little bit of it, but he gives us three reasons. I'll mention them here and then we'll kind of flesh them out a bit as we go along. You may want to jot them down. He causes us to be born again because we are hopeless. We're hopeless. He causes us to be born again because we're homeless. And He causes us to be born again because we're helpless. And here's what He's about to do in this rebirth. In the rebirth, He is going to give us a living hope. Okay, we we sang about that. We talked about it already this morning. He's going to give us a lasting inheritance. Notice that. Just look. He's going to, we're going to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance. One that is, and he says it, says it in three different ways here, and, and, he's, and there's a little different twist on each one of them, that, that is imperishable, meaning that it, it cannot die. It's undefiled, uh, meaning that it cannot be perverted can't be defiled, it can't be dirtied, it can't be tarnished, this inheritance can't, and it can't fade away. In other words, it's not going to become less than, it's not going to get old, it's not going to fade away. In other words, he gives us this, 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 this lasting inheritance, and then notice that he gives us a lifelong salvation. Notice what he says there in verse 5. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This lifelong salvation is lifelong for eternity. Lifelong salvation. And it's the resurrection of Jesus that is the ground for all of this. Notice what he says. By his great mercy. Word is translated from the Hebrew word hesed, which is uh, this, this deep abiding covenant love that we just talked about and we have worked through uh, as we gave attention to the covenant that was established in Exodus. By this great mercy, by God's great mercy, not by our goodness, not by our deserving, solely by the mercy of God. Hear that. 
solely by the mercy of God. He has caused us to be born again. Born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In other words, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the divine means by which all genuine and God-honoring spiritual life and the eternal nature and existence of that life is made possible. His resurrection is the ground for the new birth. It's the ground for all that comes after the new birth. What what do I mean by that? Well, we often look to justification, as we should. We look to the forgiveness of our sin, as we should. But all of that comes after the new birth. All of that comes after God has remade the heart and inclined the mind and the heart of the individual to turn to Him, gives him or her faith to trust in Him. Justification of sin, forgiveness of sin, the imputation uh, of righteousness, all of those things that grants immediate and permanent access to God come as a result of the new birth. It's part of salvation, but it is the order in which it comes. Now the question can be asked, is that new birth necessary? Is it necessary? Well, the answer to that is, is absolutely yes, it is necessary. So if you're here today and you're not born again, then no matter what kind of faith you claim or belief that you would claim, if you are not born again, then you are not a believer. And I'm not saying that to be judgmental. I'm just saying that when we are born again, there, is, there are definite things that take place in our life and in our heart. And, and we have talked about it before. Not to the degree of perfection, but there is a change that takes place in our heart and our mind to where we become, uh, we, we become haters of sin and lovers of God and righteousness. Where we want to beat down and destroy the pride within us in as much as we can because we long to walk in humility before God. We long to worship God. We long to be with brothers and sisters in Christ and the family of God. We long to gather as we are gathering here today. We long for relationship in the context of the body of Christ. We long for the Word of God. We long for it to be preached over us. We long to preach it to ourselves. We long for that work of the Word of God that just stirs within our hearts and just continues to weed out the unrighteousness and the sin in our life. And when those things are taking place, we see and know at that point that there is evidence of the rebirth. And I just ask you today, on this Easter Sunday, Are you born again? Are you born again? You know you were born uh, coming from your mother and father. You know how you know that? Because you're alive. That's how you know that. There may be a birth certificate that says it somewhere, but you don't have to have the birth certificate to know that you're alive. You're alive. And you know that. It's evidence of the fact that you have been born. And the same is true in the spiritual realm. 
The same is true when you are born again. You know that you are alive. Now I wake up days in my, in my physical life that I don't feel good. I don't feel right. Some days I don't even want to get up. It doesn't change the fact that I know that I'm alive because I'm alive. And the same is true with us spiritually. And you know if you're born again. You know if you're born again. And if you're born again, you're born again because God has caused that by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He has worked in you to that end. So is the new birth necessary? The answer to that is yes. In fact, apart from the new birth, as we've said, there is no justification. There's no forgiveness of sin. There's no imputed righteousness. And Peter has all of this in mind, though he doesn't use those terms. But here are the terms that he does use. He uses the terms living hope. Lasting inheritance. And lifelong salvation. Why? Well, because these are the terms that address the needs of hopeless people. And homeless people. And helpless people. Remember his audience. They are strangers and aliens. Scattered. Suffering. All because of the providence of God for the communication of the work of God and the work of the gospel to a lost world. We know that. We read it last week, but let's go back and look at it again. He said we are living stones, spiritual sacrifices. For what purpose? It's so that we are pointing to the glory of God. These terms address the needs of the hopeless, the homeless, and the helpless. And he knows the struggles and temptations of these scattered sufferers. And what is he doing here? This is important. He is writing to them to encourage them that at the heart of this encouragement is their worship of God because of who He is and because of what He is doing. So He points them again to God's sovereignty as He's pointing us back to His sovereignty, back to the need to be born again in all matters, most especially the new birth. And He's pointing us to what? His incredible mercy and Jesus' life giving work seen in the resurrection which did what? Which completely tore away all the chains of death for those who trust in Him. And then God gives them the assurance of His inheritance. Notice what He does here. He said they are born again to a living hope as opposed to what? As opposed to a dead hope. Well, he said, well, if a dead hope, there's really no hope. Well, that's the point. He's pointing them to a living hope. And the life of this hope is directly 
connected to and flows out of the life that God gives in the rebirth that is coming from the life of Christ who has just defeated death, who's just defeated the grave. Why did that take place? Well, He took our sin as we sang this morning. He bore the sin of those who would believe in Him. He bore those sin and it was sufficient to God and pleased Him. Therefore, God put His mark of approval upon that sacrifice stating that it was complete, it was finished, and it was done and raised Him from the dead giving evidence of the fact that His death did in fact produce life. And that life fuels the hope that the believer has that removes the question mark at the end of hope as we often speak of hope. It removes that question mark so that a believer's confidence is entirely not connected to circumstances but is apart from all circumstances because no matter how difficult the struggles are, no matter how heavy the persecution, no matter how deep the pain, no matter how deep we go into depression, whatever it may be, that our confidence is in the life that has been purchased by Christ fueling a living hope. Because we have been born again into life. You get it? Three times. Born again, living hope, Life coming out of life-giving resurrection of Jesus Christ. Life-giving resurrection of Jesus Christ as the ground for the rebirth, bringing about the living hope. But then notice what else that does. Hope. This hope is not subjective, but this hope is something that is internal. Hard to get a structure around something that is inside of us, at work inside of us. What is not hard is when we point that hope back to something that is objective. In other words, an objective reality. And here is the objective reality to an inheritance. To an inheritance. Now I want you to catch this. Born again, meaning born into the family, now receiving an inheritance from the Father, and we've already read and we've heard that He has given everything to Christ, so we are joint heirs with Christ, and He has given this inheritance. Now think about it just a moment. What was Israel's inheritance? Well, Israel's inheritance was their land. So much so that when God marked off their land, He marked off their land according to tribes and according to family. And if you'll go back and look at the Old Testament, that was to never leave, even to the point that if they had to sell their land at the year of Jubilee, that family would get that land back. That's how connected to that inheritance Israel was. And it was a picture of the inheritance, the eternal inheritance of that of a believer because now there is an inheritance in heaven for the believer that is marked off for every believer and here is the way Peter spoke of it. Which again, is, it fuels this living hope. 
It is something that cannot die or be taken away. It is something that cannot be, it just can't be defiled. Sin can't destroy it. It can't be ruined. It can't be tarnished. And it can't fade away. But notice what God does. He keeps it in heaven for you. He keeps it in heaven for you. Okay, so there are two possibilities here. Either the inheritance is not kept and can be lost, or there's the possibility that we could, as believers in some way, there would be that possibility of saying, okay, we just don't make it there to receive it. And God takes care of both of those things. Look at what he says in the text. He says, it's kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for this salvation ready to be revealed in the end. So God does two things to ensure the fact that we do in fact have an inheritance, that we are not homeless. He's already said you're not hopeless and you're not homeless. You have this grounded in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, this inheritance. And now notice what he says. He says he keeps it and he keeps us who are believers. By what? By his power. We're being guarded through faith. By his power. So, Let's back back up just a minute so we can get the framework for this. Verse 1, they're elect exiles, okay? They're strangers, they're aliens, they're suffering, they're scattered according to the foreknowledge of God, okay? Now, look down in verse 3, and according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again, work of God again, not man's work, God's work in every way, and we are kept for that inheritance that God has promised that is in the very center, is the very objective piece here of what Peter is trying to help these sufferers recognize that no matter how difficult it gets, no matter how hard the persecution, no matter how hard life is, no matter, this world is not yours. Heaven is. This world will fade away. It'll go away. It'll burn. It'll be destroyed. There's nothing here that's permanent. So all the things that we are seeking after in this life here, none of those things are permanent. Isn't that what Jesus was saying whenever in Matthew chapter 6 He says, lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where moth and rust and dust and fire and wind and all those things that destroy all the things that we have. This is an inheritance that will not be destroyed. A place, a home, and a place with Him. And then He keeps us by His power. Not by our power. By His power through the faith that He gives us he says, for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. What is he pointing to? He's pointing to the end. 
He's pointing to when salvation will be consummated. He's pointing to when the Lord Jesus Christ comes and takes His children home and the resurrection of the dead takes place and all of His are assembled with glorified bodies in His presence in this inheritance that has been kept and that we have been kept for. Is there reason to celebrate the resurrection? Why would we celebrate anything else other than the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has planned all of this and worked all of this on this Resurrection Sunday. If you're here and you're a believer and you're born again, a prayer is, is that your heart would be just overcome with all that God has done for you in the resurrection. Of the significance of it, knowing that it cuts across everything in your life and speaks life to you as you live now in the very darkest place and assures you life in His presence for all eternity. And if you're here today and you've not yet been born again and you've not yet trusted Christ, you've not yet looked to Him and said, I know you are the Redeemer. I know that you have suffered for my sin. I know that you live now. I know that you can save me. I want you above all else. And if you've not trusted Christ, we encourage you today to do that. So the reason that I said that the thing that I can't get away from is that this world-changing event of the resurrection of Jesus Christ affects every individual who has ever lived. Everyone. Because apart from Him, apart from Him, a man or a woman, a boy or girl, will remain hopeless, will remain homeless, and will remain helpless. You know where hope ends? You know, when the reality of the resurrection will come front and center the life of the unbeliever? It's when they step into eternity apart from God and there will be no hope. But in Christ there is living hope. It isn't to scare you. It's just to cause us to see again of how merciful and gracious God has been in Christ and how He works in our hearts and lives. Will you pray with me? Father, help us to see these things and know that they are true. 
and worship You, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who suffered for us and who has been raised to glory. And at whose feet all who ever live will acknowledge that His resurrection and your work in Him was a deciding factor for everything in life. Help that to be the deciding factor for us in eternity as we stand before You and worship You. Cause those who are here today, God, according to Your will, to trust You and bring them to new life. We ask on their behalf and for Your sake, in Jesus' name. Amen.